You know, this Saturday, my wife Erin and I will celebrate our 12th anniversary. Uh, we're excited about that. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. All that applause should go to her. And um, we're going to celebrate some of, some of our anniversaries actually going to be spent attending someone else's wedding. And so, you know, there, there are many traditions surrounding weddings, and some are meaningful, some are random. And do you know that there are some wedding traditions that are just a little bit weird? Just a little bit weird. Can I share a few with you? Some that I found this week as I was studying for the message. In China, there's a Mongolic Turkic um, people group known as the Yogur, and, or the Uyghur, the Uyghur culture. And this is one of their wedding traditions. The grooms will shoot their future brides with a bow and arrow three times. Now, well, they, they remove the arrowhead. They remove the arrowhead first, but they shoot the bride with the arrow three times, and then the groom breaks the arrows to ensure that their love uh, will stay together forever. It's a weird tradition, right? Uh, Scottish, Scottish brides-to-be are taken by surprise by their friends ahead of the big day, and they are pelted with all sorts of rubbish, such as curdled milk, dead fish, spoiled food, tar and feathers, sea urchin. No, I just added that, but... Uh, <laughs> And then the bride is tied to a tree for the night. And here's the belief. If she can withstand this kind of treatment, she can handle anything that comes her way in marriage. How many of you could have used some pelting of curdled milk to let you know what was coming in marriage? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. And then this last one here, the German tradition. My wife's half German. I'm actually a quarter German. But guests to traditional German weddings are encouraged to bring uh, porcelain, any type of porcelain, and then they smash it on the ground during the ceremony in, with the belief that this will ward off evil spirits. And then the couple, the bride and the groom, are then expected to clean up the mess together, learning that married life will not be easy, but by working together, they can overcome any challenge. Is that second part the most German thing you've ever heard in your life? It's like practical and efficient. Like the Germans are like, we're going to do this, but then you're going to clean it up together, and you're going to do it well. <laughs> There's so many traditions at weddings, and I have the privilege of officiating lots of different weddings. And when I sit down with a couple, often the first thing I say to them is, there's lots of traditions, but ultimately in this day and age, anything really goes. You kind of decide what you want that day to look like, and we can work around it. There's so many different things that can be a part of the ceremony, and there's other things that really don't have to be a part of the ceremony. But I also have a list of things that are like, these are the non-negotiables. Like, you got to do this if you're going to pull off a wedding. And one of them is very simple and very obvious, but you have to send out invitations somehow. I know it can be an email, it can be Facebook, it can be uh, actually in the mail, but somehow people have to know that they're invited. And one of the decisions that couples often have to make, first off, is who are we going to invite? That can be a little source of tension. But secondly, if we invite this person, are we going to give him or her a plus one? And a plus one simply means this. They are a single person uh, outside of some sort of a relationship or certainly at least not married. And we're saying to them by saying plus one on their invitation, you can invite a friend. You can bring somebody with you. And so a lot of times they're deciding, are we going to offer that person a plus one? Now this morning as we finish up our four-week series on discipleship, here's the big question I want us to consider as we talk through this passage in Luke 15. Who is your plus one? Who is your plus one? And in Luke 15, we find three different stories, and they're pretty familiar stories if you grew up in the church. And they are about three lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. In each of these stories, we learn something about the value of the one. And so 
This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first story, the story of the lost sheep. And we're going to see three things in this text. We're going to see the audience, the story, and the response. So if you're a note taker, it should be there in your handout. The audience, the story, the response. Let's look first at the, sto- at the audience. In Luke chapter 15, let's just read the first two verses together. It says this. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering near to hear him. Speaking of Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. There's two very distinct audiences here when Jesus tells this story. There's the, on one hand, you have the tax collectors and the sinners. And on the other hand, you have the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, the tax collectors and the sinners, there were a scandalous bunch. For centuries before and after Jesus, tax collectors were universally hated. St. Chrysostom once said in a sermon, and I quote, the tax collector or the tax gatherer is the personification of licensed violence, legal sin, and specious greed. This is how they talked about tax collectors. They were considered turncoat Jews who had sold their souls to the Romans so that they could pray on their fellow Jews. They were loathed in every way. In fact, if you were a tax collector, if you were a Jewish tax collector, there were certain synagogues that would not even receive your alms. They wouldn't receive your alms because that's how they felt about you. Your testimony wasn't accepted in a Jewish court, and tax collectors were actually considered lower or worse than heathens. But you know what's amazing about this story is Jesus allows them to draw near. He allows them to draw near. And we know from this story and in other stories that Jesus isn't just hanging out with them. He's having a meal with them. He's at a dinner party. And sharing bread, breaking bread, sharing a meal with somebody in this culture at this time was a sign of acceptance. I accept you. Because uh, sharing a meal was an intimate occasion. The way that they would sit around the table and they would, they would lean on top of each other as they ate. And it was this, to go into someone's home or to have someone into your home was this way of saying, I, I accept of you and, and I welcome you. And here Jesus is welcoming these tax collectors. He's welcoming these sinners. You know, when we look at this story, we see a few key things. We see in this story that Jesus welcomes, uh, Jesus welcomes them in because he has compassion on them. We'll see that in a minute. But also as we read the rest of Luke 15, we see that Jesus welcomes them in because he values them, because he cares for them. Jesus is allowing them to draw near. This was surprising, and this was even scandalous. And here's one of the things that we learn about Jesus. Jesus loves sinners in ways that's scandalous to religious people. He does. Jesus loves people who are far from him in ways that makes religious people, church people, uncomfortable. In fact, if your God isn't gracious to sinners in ways that make you uncomfortable, then you've created a God who is no more gracious than you are. If your God isn't gracious to sinners in ways that make you uncomfortable, then you've created in your mind a God who's no more gracious than you are. That's not good news for any of us. There was a rabbinic commentary that said that a person should not associate with the godless, even to the point that the rabbis, and Jesus was considered a rabbi in many ways, a rabbi would not associate with a tax collector, not even to teach him. So they were considered so low, so evil, so wicked that they were saying they're beyond reaching. They're not even worth your breath to bring to them the good news of of, of what you have to offer. And this was the attitude. But Jesus, obviously, 
here extends love and grace to this crowd. Now, anyone who was standing outside of this room and looking at this audience would have thought to themselves, they know, they know for sure who's really good and who's really bad. You know, this person's good because they're a Pharisee or a scribe. This person's bad because they're a tax collector or a sinner. But they would have been wrong. They would have been wrong. And you know that if Jesus is going to teach us in just a moment in this story, that if you can't celebrate when someone who is lost is found, then you're more lost than they ever were. If you can't celebrate when someone who is lost is found, when there's some corner of your heart that says, ah, not that person, or not that type of person, not them. If you can't celebrate when someone who's lost is found, then you're more lost than they ever were. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they're more lost than the tax collectors. And do you know why? A couple reasons. They cared about the rules more than they cared about the people. They cared about their reputation more than they cared about the restoration of people who were far from God. They cared about keeping their distance more than they cared about loving their neighbor. And they cared about following traditions more than they cared about following Jesus. And here's my prayer for us as a church this morning. God, let that never be true of us. Let it never be true of us that we love our rules and our standards more than we love people. That we demand that people behave and believe before we invite them to belong and be a part of what God's doing in their life, that we would care more about our reputation than drawing near to people who do nothing for our status, who do nothing for our reputation. God, let us be people like Jesus who came to seek and save the lost and who would sit down and break bread with those who the rest of society looked at and said, they're worthless, don't spend any time with them. Both audiences needed the story that Jesus is about to tell, but here's the truth. When Jesus told this story, it only sounded like good news to one of them. It only sounded like good news to one of the two audiences. And be careful that we don't make the same mistake. Okay, so this is the audience. Now let's look at the story, and we're going to read verses 3 through 7. Here's Jesus telling them this story. It says, so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays that sheep on his shoulders to carry that sheep home, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance." Jesus tells a story here. Jesus is a master storyteller, and he talks about a shepherd that has a hundred sheep. Now, sheep, what do we know about sheep? Sheep require guidance. Sheep require protection. Sheep can't really do much for themselves. And so here we have this, this illustration, this metaphor of a shepherd caring for sheep who can't do much for themselves. But what I want you to notice about this shepherd's search is that it's not a search born out of crisis, it's a search born out of care. Now, what do I mean? He has 99. He lost one. It's not a crisis. I don't, imagine that you go out to dinner and you order uh, a double cheeseburger with fries. It's cheat night, right? Cheat night. Double cheeseburger with fries and it comes out. Now, if one of your fries hits the ground, what are you most likely going to do? You're going you're gonna to cry. But, 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 but most people would just say, it's one of many. I got a plate full of fries. I don't need all these fried carbs. Like, it's just one. It's not a big deal. But, but what if your double your bacon double cheeseburger hits the ground. It's a crisis. 
It's a crisis. It's, we need prayerful intervention in that moment, right? It's a big deal. If you lose one fry, you're probably not going to call the waitress over and go, I had a fry. On, I, I lost a fry. Could, you, could they make me one fry? Could they make, could they replace? You, you sound like a crazy person, right? But if you drop your burger on the ground, guess what you're going to say? Either you're going to claim the five-second rule or you're going to say to the waiter or the waitress, I'm so sorry, but like this burger, my wife knocked my plate and knocked my burger on the ground. I'm just kidding. My, my, my burger's on the ground. That's a good thing about having kids. You just blame the kids for everything. My kids threw my burger on the ground. Can you make, because it's a crisis, right? In this story, the shepherd's not at the point of crisis. He has 99 other sheep. So why does he leave the 99 to go after the one? This is about his heart for that lost sheep. This is how much he loves. This is about care and compassion. In the next story, we read about a woman who had 10 coins and she can't find one. And she turns her house upside down to find that one coin. And in that story, Jesus is teaching us about the value of the one. But in this story, he's talking about compassion. And here's what I want you to consider this morning. Do you know that that's how God sees you? That you were the one lost sheep. He left the 99 to come find you. He had compassion on you. He loved you. He pursued you. And here's what Jesus does for us like the shepherd. He comes to us and he finds us. We are the ones who get lost. Jesus is the one who finds us, right? Sometimes we think, well, I'll find my way back to God at some point in my life. I'll find Jesus. Newsflash, Jesus isn't lost. He's never been lost. You don't go find Jesus. Jesus comes and finds you. And he finds this sheep who is destined for destruction, the sheep that's all by itself, that's eventually going to starve or eventually be killed by wolves, by wild animals. And he finds this sheep and he rescues this sheep and he puts this sheep lovingly over his shoulders. He doesn't say to the sheep, well, sheep, well, he wouldn't probably talk to the sheep anyway because sheep don't talk, but he wouldn't say, well, sheep, you wandered all the way here. Now you're going to walk all the way back. You're going to feel every step of this journey And you're going to prove to me that you want to be part of the 99. You prove it to me. You walk back and you walk and I'm going to follow behind you. You He doesn't do that. He picks that lost sheep up who wandered off. He throws that sheep on his shoulder. He says, I'll carry you home. And this is the good God that we serve. He finds us where we're lost. And he doesn't say to us, now you prove that you deserve back in. You earn your way back in. I want you to walk every step that you walked away from me. I want you to walk every single step back. And I want it to be a painful reminder of what you've done to yourself and what you've done to people in your lives and what you've done to me. Here's what God does. He comes and he scoops you up in his loving arms. He puts you over his shoulders like a shepherd carrying a sheep and he carries you all the way home. This is the God that we serve who leaves the 99 to find the one. See, in, in this time in history, the Jewish teachers, they would very often teach that God will forgive the repentant. If you return to God, God will forgive you. But, but most of them never would have taught that God would actually pursue you, that God would chase after you. You return to God, and then God will forgive you. But in this story, Jesus flips the whole view of God on its head by showing a shepherd who chases after a lost sheep, a woman who turns her house upside down to find one coin. And then the last story, probably the most well-known story of the three, the son who squanders everything. And as he returns home, the father runs to him and just wraps his arms around him and kisses him and welcomes him home. And he says that the shepherd comes home and calls his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me 
for I found my sheep that was lost. This is the same thread in every one of these three stories. In every one of these three stories, when what was lost is found, the person who found it gathers together friends and family and neighbors and says, let's have a party. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice. Let me ask you this question, and we have to consider this when we get to this point in the story. One of the clearest indicators that you're a friend of God is that you celebrate what he celebrates. One of the clearest indicators that your heart belongs to God is that you get excited about what God gets excited about, that you love lost people the way that he loves lost people, that you love hurting people the way that God loves hurting people, that you leave the 99 to go after the one. And ask yourself this question as a moment of self-reflection. Is there anyone in your life, is there any type of person in this world that you would hesitate to celebrate if they were rescued and carried home? Is there anyone? Who is that person? Who is that type of person? You know, our country is a very divided country. We have lots of strong feelings about people who think differently than us and act differently than us and vote differently than us. And it's a very difficult time to have healthy relationships with people who are different than us. But as Christians, there's a higher calling. There's a higher loyalty. We can have our loyalties, but our highest loyalty is to the kingdom of God. Faithfulness to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And the teachings of Jesus Christ say you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. And we don't categorize and, and, and we don't characterize and we don't demonize people from a distance. We draw near. You can't really love somebody from a distance. You can't really know somebody from a distance. And we have to leave to go after the one. So don't miss this. The value of the one. You're the one that Jesus came after. So lastly, this morning, we have the audience, we have the story. Now we have the response. You know, Jesus didn't just tell stories to kind of pass the time. Jesus didn't just tell stories to entertain people. When Jesus told a story, parables were always intended to pull out of the audience a response. There always was supposed to be something that they did in response to the story. So this morning, as we consider this story, what a mistake it would be for us to sit here and listen to this story and say, that's a nice story. That's not why that story is in the Bible. The story is in the Bible for a response. So what is our response? Well, we have to realize that we are the one that Jesus rescued. But once you realize that you're the rescued one, you know what it should do? It should move you to go rescue others. It should move you to look around and say, who's missing? There's 99 here this morning, but who's the one? There's 99 in my life, but who is the one? And who is the one that I'm going to go after? Who is your plus one? Are we consumed with and passionate about reaching people who don't know God and haven't experienced his love? Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, said this one time. This is a little bit harsh, but he said it, not me. He said, every Christian is either a missionary. Now, he doesn't mean literally like leave America and go somewhere else. He just means a missionary in the sense of you're living on mission. You're, you're sharing your life. You're reaching the one, okay? Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Charles Spurgeon. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Either you are living on the mission of God, pursuing God's will and purposes, loving people, serving people, advancing his kingdom, or there's a significant disconnect in what you believe, or what you say you believe, and how you live. Now, at this point, some people would say, well, yeah, this is the problem, actually, with Christians. This is what bothers me about them. They're always trying to tell people how to live. Like, let us all live our own lives. That's great that it's good for you, but I got my own thing. And and, and sometimes this bothers people. But, you know, I was reading a quote recently by, you know, the famous magicians that uh, they have the show in Vegas, Penn and Teller. You've you've probably heard of Penn and Teller. Well, Penn Gillette, who's the one that that talks during their uh, shows, he's actually an atheist. 
And I was reading an interview with him uh, recently, and he said this. Now listen, this is so interesting to me. He's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God on any level, but this is what he said. He said, I don't respect Christians who don't proselytize. Now, if you're not familiar with that word, proselytize simply means to share your faith and tell people what you believe. He said, I don't respect them. I don't respect that at all. He says, if you believe, now he doesn't believe this, but he's saying, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or whatever, and you think that it's not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, then he says, this haunted me. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that there's a heaven and a hell and not tell them that? He's not a, he doesn't believe, but he's just saying, if you believe and you're not doing something about it, I don't respect that. And so I don't say that to like burden you with this guilt, but it's a gut check, isn't it? Uh, what, what are we doing with what we've, we've, been, we've been given? If we've been rescued, what are we doing to see others rescued? And some people say, sit back and go, oh, well, there's so many people who need to know. I don't even know where to start. All my neighbors and my family and so many people. And Andy Stanley, a preacher down in Atlanta, one time he said this in a sermon. He said, if you feel that way, then this should be your mindset. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Start there. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Who is your plus one? Who are you going after? I'm not asking in a sort of um, generic, general way. I'm asking, like, who's that person? What's their name? Who is the one that you would say, this is my plus one. This is the one that, this is the person. This is the family member. This is the friend. This is the coworker. This is the neighbor. This is my friend at school that God has put in my heart, and I'm going to fight for that person. And I'm going to be a part of God's plan to rescue them. And I'm going to do whatever I have to do to see them brought into the fold. In this series on discipleship, we talked about this idea of how do we make disciples. And let me bring this up again. We have a slide here. How do we make disciples? It's very simple. We do two things. You have to live a life worth sharing, and then you have to share it generously, intentionally. If you're going to pursue the one, if you're going to go after your plus one, then you have to do these two things. First, you have to live a life worth sharing, and we've talked about that during this series. But then secondly, you have to be willing to share it generously and intentionally. Let me define those two adverbs for you. Generously looks like this. Are you sharing your life with people in a way that inconveniences you and costs you something? Or are you only sharing your life in a way that's comfortable for you, in a way that makes sense for you? What are some ways that you are inconveniencing yourself and making yourself uncomfortable, whether it's the people, the type of person that you're sharing your life with, or whether it's the frequency, whether it's the intimacy, whether it's the transparency? If we're going to generously share our lives, it's going to cost us something. How about sharing our lives with people that don't help our status, don't help our reputation, don't help us look impressive because we're hanging out with them? That's generously sharing your life. And generously sharing your life also means meeting needs identifying the needs in the lives of your neighbors and your friends and saying, what can I do to help serve you? How about the adverb intentionally? Intentionally sharing your life means, first off, being led by the Spirit in all things, listening to the Holy Spirit, leading you and guiding you in conversations. Here's the truth. Here's my guess. Some of you have people that you've been friends with for a long time, and it's almost like the window of, 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 of sharing your faith has passed. You almost feel like now it would be weird because we've been friends for 18 years or eight years, and I've never done it. It just would be weird now. You feel like maybe that window has passed. The thing I want to encourage you with is simply be willing to ask better questions, 
to ask new questions, to ask different questions, and to ask the Spirit to give you opportunities to share your faith. Intention, uh, sharing your faith, sharing your life intentionally also means that you're listening. You're a good listener. What a lost art in our world today. People who are good listeners. People who just aren't just waiting for their turn to talk. But they actually are hearing what you're saying and then asking you questions about what you said. And then listen to their conversations and listen for their searching. So who is your plus one? In just a moment, we're going to respond in a very practical way. I'm going to ask everyone in this room to respond and we're going, to, we're going to bring up some chalkboards up here. There are four chalkboards that hang in our cafe, and they're blank almost every week. In just a few moments, because I'm telling you this now so you can be praying about it and thinking about it, I'm going to ask everyone in this room who feels comfortable doing so and feels led by the Spirit to do so and is willing to do so to get out of their seat, to come to the front, and to write on the chalkboard the name of your plus one. Don't write their full name because we want some privacy for them, and we also don't have a ton of space. Just write their first name or just write their initials. And what we're going to do is once we have those chalkboards up here, we're going to hang them up there in the cafe. And they're going to hang there as a reminder. This is my plus one. And what we're believing is that this is the person that you're going to share life with. Here's some practical ways that you can reach out to your plus one. First off, maybe for some of you, you can't think of anybody. Well, you know what your first next step is? You got to make a friend. Like, you got to make a friend. If you don't have friends that don't know Jesus, you should be making friends. And making friends is a lot about just being an interesting person. So no offense, but being a more interesting person, and you're going to make more friends. That's really what that comes down to. Uh, another way to do this is to share a meal. Invite somebody to share a meal. Start a conversation. Be there for somebody when they're going through a crisis. Share your story with them. Extend an invitation. Invite them. In fact, one thing we didn't mention about the dinner parties, I saved it until now, is that when you go out to sign up for the dinner parties, what you're going to see is that there's 15 slots that are for people in this church. But at the bottom in red ink, there's five more slots, 16 through 20. And those are not to be signed. If you attend this church, or if you're part of the church, those are not for you. Those are for your plus one. We're going to believe that by God's grace, some of our plus ones are going to be at our dinner parties with us in November and December. Who is your plus one? Well, let me finish with this thought, and then we're going to come up and write our names on these chalkboards. Where do we find the strength and the motivation to go after the one? You know what's kind of the saddest thing about this story that Jesus told when you consider the audience? Do you know who was supposed to be the shepherds, the spiritual shepherds of the Jewish people? The Pharisees and the scribes. They were the ones that were supposed to be chasing after the lost. But you know, it's really hard to chase after the lost when you won't even associate with them. This was not a new problem for Jesus or in Jesus' times. This was a problem in the Old Testament. And in Ezekiel chapter 34 God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel, and he says, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. God's basically saying, I got a problem with my church. I got a problem with my people. He says, instead of feeding the, sh the sheep, they're feeding themselves. Verse 3, he says, he's talking about the shepherds. He says, you eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. Now, hold on. Where does a shepherd get wool from the sheep? He's saying, you're, you're using the sheep for your own gain. You slaughter the fat sheep. You, you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And what Jesus is saying, you're not going after the one. Who's your plus one? And then Ezekiel says, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. There was no one fighting for them. There are people in our community, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces that are scattered and lost. Why? Because nobody's fighting for them. Nobody's feeding them. 
Nobody's finding them. Nobody's going after them. Who are we as the people of God if we don't exist for that purpose and that plan? And then look what God says. This will be on the screen for you, verses 11 and 12. This is the good news. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for the sheep and seek them out. Saying, you're not doing it. I'm going to do it. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Do you know what, do you know what God's talking about there? How is God up in heaven going to come and shepherd his lost sheep? Only through Jesus. And Jesus said in John 10, I am what? the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And you know what the good shepherd does? The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. The sheep that have been scattered, and at the end of that verse said, on a day of clouds and thick darkness, which some believe is a prophetic looking forward to when the moment when Jesus was on the cross and the sky went dark. And in that moment, the good shepherd laid his life down for the sheep. Why? Because someone had to save them. Someone had to rescue them. The kings in the Old Testament, as hard as they tried, they couldn't do it. The prophets, the priests, they weren't enough. But in Jesus, we have the true and better king, the true and better prophet, the true and better priest, the good shepherd who laid his life. And listen, if he laid his life down for you, will you not lay your life down for others? Who is your plus one? Let's pray together this morning.